Welcome back. So as I said, uh, the, the topic is, uh, is psychotherapy, uh, mental health, and uh, dharma, and their, their overlaps and intersections and maybe tensions. Just curiously, how, how many people are you know, the in, have been or in the field of, of mental health or some related field. Okay. Definitely an over-representation. Uh, yeah. Welcome to you all. Hope This is not uh, a workshop, though, or so it should be. It's hopefully relevant to, to everyone as we think about our own practice, as we think about what it means to be... Uh, what the good life is. So there's a, uh, a traditional distinction between uh, enlightenment, mystical experience, non-ordinary states of consciousness, between that on the one hand and psychological growth on the other. And uh, different uh, traditions have had uh, different emphases on one side or the other. Uh, and uh, I, I, of course, think both are, are quite relevant and actually mutually supportive. But uh, the problem seems to me to arise when one side of that equation is privileged to the, uh, yeah, and the other side is in some ways diminished. And so when, when spiritual traditions have privileged the enlightenment side, a particular set of experiences, attainments, insights, to the detriment of psychological growth, it tends to be an unbalanced kind of path. Um, it, it tends to, uh, in, my, in my opinion, produce um, practice that just doesn't feel very steady. And what I've seen uh, is that is that really deep uh, penetrating insight, the kinds of things that get that qualify as enlightenment experiences, they can coexist with deep immaturity too. Yes. Yeah, we're getting some verbal yeses yes. from the, uh, yes. you know, right, um, and that that just that is that notion is kind of startling somehow that there is there is the kind of hope or fantasy that particular kinds of experiences or insights unravel all of the knots in one's being and i just haven't really seen that and and i think in fact a lot of the the thrust of of um Jack's effort and, you know, many teachers at Spirit Rock is towards an integration of these two, what I'm calling, two sides of the equation. Um, Now, uh, at the same time, it's problematic when we get unbalanced in the other way, in the sense that we can actually turn the Dharma into another brand of psychotherapy. There are ways of of teaching, ways of approaching the Dharma that's um, 
where some of the kind of radical potentials are un, actually undercut, where we actually sell ourselves short on what is possible, on how good life can be. And what, what's missed is both how radically free we can feel in the moment, and also how radical the vision of compassion actually is. And so there is some risk in, uh, in getting unbalanced in either, either direction. And what, what I want to suggest is that uh, that there is a, a kind of there is actually possible integration between the um, traditional insights um, that the Buddha speaks about and a kind of balanced, integrated personality and psychological well-being. So I, I suppose. What uh, what I'm really asking is, you know, what 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 does what does it mean to be a mature person? Like, what does that actually mean? Sometimes the very word enlightenment, awakening, f- narrows our focus, and we we look at very particular experiences that a person may or may not have had in their practice. But I appreciate, uh, instead of focusing on distinctions between enlightened and unenlightened, instead to talk about it, as as, uh, some teachers do, as kind of spiritual maturity. Like, what does it mean to really grow up? Yeah. Like to really to grow up, and I, I would suggest that it's uh, it's actually a balance between the kind of penetrating insight and psychological development. So in uh, in the therapeutic world, there's been as you may well know, the kind of groundswell of interest in mindfulness. And it, it's, it's, it's kind of, uh, having been a practitioner now for, for uh, you know, for 15 years or so, to actually, to see the kind of ways in which mindfulness is colonizing the therapeutic world. It's like, it's wild. And, uh, and it's, quite, um, it's quite touching, actually. Uh, you know, you look in these traditional journals, like, and, and high, you know, really well-respected medical journals and scientific journals and and you actually see words like meta in there, or like choiceless awareness in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And it's like wild, wild for me. And uh, it's, quite, it's quite touching actually, because uh, we actually know some of the potentials of those practices. And, I think um, it's curious that actually mindfulness is making its way more into the, the most uh, kind of scientifically oriented psychology programs that I would have, if you would have asked me, I would have guessed it's probably going to make its way more into kind of the progressive, slightly crunchy, maybe oriented. That's not to be dismissive at all, but just like, now it's going to be the more, yeah, maybe spirit rocky psychology programs, right? 
But what's actually happened is it's the it's um, it's been sort of the more conservative like um, people who have the more kind of cognitive behavioral um, uh, trick camps that have actually adopted mindfulness more than some of the other other psychological approaches, and for the most part, I feel like um, it's being integrated in in interesting, wise, thoughtful ways. Um, There's probably the enthusiasm around mindfulness probably outstrips the evidence, you know, actually, that we've gotten a little bit ahead of the data and there's a little bit of a sense of mindfulness for everything, you know. And uh, I think that's natural, and it's it's a lot of times what it is is people actually get a taste of the practice, and it it hits something deep within them, and then they go through an evangelical phase. <laughs> and uh, maybe you've had one of those. Uh, uh, I I did have have a period of about a year when I wanted to be uh, yelling at people to start meditating. Uh, and so, so there is this burgeoning enthusiasm and, and uh, maybe it's making claims that uh, science is going to moderate, is going to uh, uh, moderate in some way. But um, and for the most part, I think it's been really some very wise integrations of, of mindfulness practices in psychological um, treatment. The New York Times, reflecting um, on the kind of the risks and benefits of, of all of this, um, they wrote... The question is not whether mindfulness meditation will become a sophisticated therapeutic technique or lapse into self-help cliché. The answer to that question is yes to both. Um, but we, we are really witnessing um, yeah, fairly substantial changes in how mental health is approached and what we define as mental health. And so one of the leaders in this movement, Steve Hayes, says that we're, we're witnessing, quote, a shift from having our mental health defined by the content of our thoughts to having it defined by our relationship to that content and changing that relationship by sitting with, noticing, and becoming disentangled from our definition of ourselves. Sound sound familiar? So, a couple important key similarities and overlaps between the Dharma approach and mindfulness in mental health. Um, They're motivated by a wish to alleviate suffering, right? Each has its own definition of suffering, has its own definition of well-being, but each is really, at its heart, uh, seeking to reduce suffering. And that's just that intention is quite, uh, quite beautiful. Some of the the mechanisms that are shared between Dharma practice and and psychotherapy um, are interesting to me, and I want to highlight one one particular aspect that I think in Dharma we don't really appreciate how much we're talking about this concept. Um, but it, it's the, the, the concept, the practice techniques around exposure therapy. 
So I'll say a little bit more about this. Uh, but one of the ways of understanding how our distress stays in place is that we have uh, unhelpful patterns of uh, avoidance and trying to control what we experience, trying to alter the frequency or intensity of particular experiences. And that uh, our move towards more health comes in the very counterintuitive gesture of opening the heart to that which is avoided, that which is the cause of anxiety. And it's through that actual encountering of the kind of feared stimulus, whatever that may be, that we actually start to, the language I would use is acclimatize in a way to it. But what's really happening perhaps is that we're becoming habituated and desensitized to that feared something. And we're also disconfirming our catastrophic beliefs about what will happen if X or Y arises in us. I, I'll, I'll take some questions after, yeah. Um, and we're also forming new kind of new learning. There's new learning happening when we actually can meet something that's been challenging and we can meet it in the stillness of the body, in the soothing quality of the breathing. And exposure, exposure is a kind of core mechanism for why probably a wide range of psychotherapies are useful. And in Dharma practice, uh, I, I think sometimes without even knowing it, we as, as Dharma teachers are essentially referencing a mechanism of exposure as a kind of core component of the, our healing, right? That you, you've probably heard a lot, right? Like to be with, to open to, to stay present, yeah to allow things to unwind, to offer, to be uh, open-hearted in the midst of this, right? That is like a, a central trope in much of Dharma. And I think what's actually being asked of us in those moments is, is uh, it's actually... Uh, what the Dharma is in part a kind of exposure therapy. Except we're not just exposing ourselves to our snake phobia, right? Maybe, you know, use a very simple example. You are afraid of snakes and you go in to for 10 sessions of what would be ex probably exposure therapy. And you would start by maybe just writing down the word snake on a piece of paper. And you would do that enough until using maybe some breathing or relaxation techniques, you felt no anxiety in writing the word snake. And then you would watch a video of a snake, right? And repeat the kind of process. And then at the final session, you're in the pet shop, right? Boa constrictor <laughs> draped on your shoulders, right? And the therapist says, are you okay? And you're just like, yeah, I'm fine, <laughs> right? Now, that's sometimes called systematic 
desensitization or systematic exposure therapy because you're working in a very measured, gradual, incremental way. And what Dharma practice is, is uh, it's unsystematic exposure therapy, right? Because as we know, whatever can bother us, will. Yeah. Not to sound depressing, that's just the logic of the practice. Whatever can disrupt our peace, will. And we're actually training ourselves to, uh, to expose the heart to that which disrupts the peace. And over time, it's like there's more and more space for that experience to arise. It rattles us less and less. We maintain a sense of freedom amidst more and more. And so this is actually, I think, a a key overlap between psychotherapy, dharma practice. Now there's, there's a difference too though, right? Um, we can uh, we can think of maybe the difference in this way. There's a difference in the the depth of aspiration. So perhaps we can think of well-being, a kind of spectrum of well-being, and on this end we have you know, just unmitigated misery. And on this end, we have profound flourishing. Psychotherapy, in general, has focused on this left half of the spectrum. Right? And, that, and that's, that's that work in that half of the spectrum, which I've done as a, as a therapist and as a, as a patient, that's beautiful work. I'm in no way dismissive of it. But it's focused on the left half of the spectrum primarily. Dharma, traditionally, its aspiration is in the right half of the spectrum. From the center point where life is actually okay, but something feels like it's missing. The heart doesn't feel fully at ease. And traditionally, Dharma has focused on this half of the spectrum. But interestingly, it also can be quite helpful on the left half, right? the Dharma can be, um, and I think is, for, for many of us, or maybe all of us, in some ways, a form of psychotherapy, a form of psychological growth, healing, rehabilitation. But there is this difference in, in aspiration. And so, in a very sober moment from uh, Freud... Um, he said that uh, that the the aim, the aspirations of psychoanalysis, was simply to turn hysterical misery into common unhappiness. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, I'm interested in a little more than common unhappiness, you know, not to be dismissive of Freud. um, The Dharma takes a different perspective and and proposes that there are dimensions of well-being that unless we engage in some kind of contemplative practice, we, 
we miss out entirely. We may not even know they exist. So uh, Maslow said, uh, very, yeah, kind of startling comment. Um, What we call normal in psychology is really a psychopathology of the average. So undramatic and so widely spread that we don't even notice it ordinarily. I, I, as a kid, I did, um, I did have the intuition that uh, that adults somehow. I was kind of uh, a little presumptuous of me at my, you know, age ten or something like that. But I did have this sense that adults didn't really know about happiness. I knew I wasn't happy. It was like freaked out little kid. Uh, but I also had the intuition that adults were missing something quite fundamental. And that even at that young age, I, I wanted something more. And I was curious about a vision of, a, of the good life that was more radical. So, William James says, uh, psychologist, uh, says, the whole drift of my education goes to persuade me that the world of our present consciousness is only one out of many worlds of consciousness that exist and that those other worlds must contain experiences which have meaning for our life also. And that although in their main, their experiences of those, uh, um, the experiences uh, of those other worlds of consciousness and this world are kept discreet the two become continuous at certain points and higher energies filter in. So in, in trying to meet this, the right side of this spectrum of well-being, uh, the Dharma adds some components that aren't so prominent in psychotherapy. And I think there are probably many, but the ones that that seem important to me are sila is added, conduct. Now, I, I don't think that's actually left out of psychotherapy, but... In the Dharma world, that is very explicit, the, the claim, and it's a testable claim for each of us, that deep abiding happiness is elusive unless we are living in alignment with our ethical impulses. that when we feel out of integrity with our own deepest intentions for non-harming, well-being is undercut. And certain kinds of happiness may be possible, but the deepest kinds of peace are not actually possible when we're out of alignment with our own heart intention. The Dharma also adds this emphasis on the three characteristics that we've spent spent a couple months going through of uh, dukkha, nicca, anatta, unsatisfactoriness, impermanence, not-self. And maybe most important in granting us um, access, privilege to insight is the Buddhist emphasis on samadhi, 
on the gathered mind, the unified mind. That's an explicit uh, cultivation within the work that we're doing. And at some level, that right half of the spectrum is um, many of those fruits unfold from the development of steadiness. Now, uh, one of the important questions that uh, arises because psychotherapy is in, you know, necessarily a secular approach is, is the question, what, what, what does it mean for something to be secular? What does secularity actually mean? And this is coming up more and more as Buddhist-inspired mindfulness programs enter the public sphere. And there seems to be some, uh, yeah, we're grappling with this. Like, what is it? Is the Dharma secular? What, what does that mean? What does secular mean? And on the one hand, um, there are voices within Dharma which say very much, this is a secular thing. This is a universal, right? These are universal practices These don't require any belief. These are verifiable in your own direct experience. These apply across time and culture. These are pretty, it's a kind of secular science of the mind. Sometimes it's presented in that way. But then there's also an emphasis on on the Dharma as having some religious aspects of of taking refuge, for example, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. And so I think it's it's unclear exactly how this this dialogue is going to unfold. Uh, what can what can be borrowed from the Buddhist tradition and still be secular? What can't? Right now, there is a notion that you can, you can really distill practices, you can teach practices that come, that are just practices. So we're just going to do mindfulness of breathing meditation in a school context or a hospital or a clinic. And that's taught as a secular kind of thing, which I think is reasonable. But there is this notion that you can actually teach a practice without teaching a view. Does that make sense? That that there's a a sense that you can actually teach, you can just do a, teach a practice without prescribing a certain way of looking, a certain set of beliefs or approaches to experience. And increasingly to me, it seems hard to do that. It's hard to teach a viewless way of practicing. That makes sense that we're we're actually, Sayadaw Tejaniya, who's teaching up the hill in a couple weeks, says awareness alone is not enough. It's awareness working with wisdom that does the work. And a lot of times, even the way mindfulness is taught in secular settings, there is some prescription about how to see, how to view experience, attitudes that make, are more conducive to well-being. So, so um, a couple more reflections, and I just wanted to lay out the, the 
what I say, three major ways that that um, mindfulness is making its way into the therapeutic world. And the first is as a kind of uh, antidote to something like compassion fatigue, you know, um, and. Yeah, burnout, kind of the erosion of empathy that uh, can happen. Uh, and for some people, some people who, who are like dedicating their lives to serving, it's actually a revelation to like care for themselves kindly. Um, and so, so one aspect of, of mindfulness is, is mindfulness as a kind of self-care practice for mental health professionals. Um, the, uh, the second is, um, is actually using mindfulness to enhance the therapeutic effectiveness of the clinician. So... Therapists in studies will reliably have different um, different therapists will be more or less effective, even doing the same kind of therapy with the same kind of patients. And the question is, okay, like what what accounts for the difference? What, you're both doing the same cognitive behavioral therapy. You're both seeing the same kinds of folks. Why is it that this person, this therapist seems to get better results than the other? And there is this notion that, uh, that, that mindfulness practice may actually enhance some of the kind of clinical skills of the therapist. So that even if they're not teaching mindfulness at all, they may be becoming better by listening more deeply, being more, uh, more kind of empathically connected, more attuned, maybe more intuitive. We don't know. But we do know that, from, for example, in one clinical trial, one group of therapists meditated an hour a day before seeing their patients, and the other group of therapists didn't meditate. And then the, the patients didn't know anything about this. They didn't know that they had a th- meditating therapist or a non-meditating therapist, right? And then they looked over after two months to see whether there was any difference in how the two groups of patients were doing. And uh, I wouldn't be bringing this study up <laughs> if it were uh, no, a null effect. Uh, but actually, across a wide range of outcomes, the meditating therapist, their, their patient group was doing better. So this is another, another way in which mindfulness is making its way in. And then the last is that it's, it's become a, an explicit uh, intervention in the form of most famously mindfulness-based stress reduction, but also mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, you know, mindfulness-based relapse prevention, a kind of proliferation of different approaches to human suffering where mindfulness is, is at the center. And there's a kind of dialogue going on between the Dharma and the psychological world. And it's certainly having some positive effects in the realm of, of psychological practice therapy. But my, my hope is that um, actually in that dialogue, the the Dharma will mature in its own ways too. And that, uh, that science and uh, psychological research and clinical wisdom actually will, inf- will become more infused, as I think it is, in the Dharma. 
and that this dialogue may actually be productive in ways we can't even envision right now. So we've got about uh, 15 minutes or so for any, any questions. And it can be on this particular topic or it can be more, more generally about your, your practice. Um, I think we'll, we'll wait for Sean to uh, grab the mic. I'll go, thanks. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not trying. <laughs> I think there's one in the back. I was just wondering how you define wisdom. How do you define wisdom? That's pretty good. Um, Insight that leads to less suffering for oneself and others. There can be, I think the, the hallmark of, of wisdom is that it's actually, it actually leads to some freedom. And that's why sometimes we can have an experience of insight, but then we actually have to see, does it take hold? Does it actually become wisdom? And we ask that question by looking at does uh, is this actually freeing my heart in some way? Is it leading onward towards less suffering for myself and others? And that, that to me is the arbiter of the, the value of, of any insight. Uh, the topic that you just touched upon, what uh, reading material do you recommend? Reading material? Yes. Um, for Can you say a little bit more about your, um, your interest? Uh, for suffering, anxiety, yeah. you know, uh, through Dharma. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there are some good, like a hand now, like a handbook of mindfulness, and um, there's a book that's edited by Ruth uh, Bear, B A E R. That's mindfulness and the intersections with mental health. You can, that's that's worth checking out. Thank you. Yeah, sure. have a very well articulated question but I was just thinking about what you were saying about ways that the Dharma could grow uh, or be informed by psychotherapy and sort of dialogues between the two mm. and I'm interested in how psychotherapy depends on you know certain um, orientations anyway of psychotherapy focus a lot on relationships and particularly you know, dyadic relationships between two people, whether it's, you know, a mother and a child or a couple. Yeah. And I feel like I, I'm not quite figuring out as I go along in my Dharma practice how the Dharma can help me in that realm yeah. more. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, it's a very, um, yeah, I appreciate that, that comment. Um, it, it does, I, I, yeah, I do think the Dharma offer, there are lots of different teachings and practices that, that can, can and often are relevant for interpersonal healing, getting along well, conducive to good relationships, but it doesn't always pan out that way. And uh, some of it, I think, is just that relating is a humbling kind of practice, right? Uh, It's a little bit like where the rubber meets the road, kind of, and... um, yeah, you talk about like in, whether insight has matured into wisdom. You know, you really can see, like, oh yeah, I know, anger cannot lead to well-being, and yet I need to tell them right now what they're doing wrong. <laughs> and it's like, okay, some of the deepest kind of habit energies arise in relationship and um, yeah I, I think I think the the impact of Dharma on that is is a little bit uneven sometimes it really takes hold and some but some patterns are untouched and we do actually have to rely on other modalities and other ways of, of approaching it um, but I you know, yeah, relational, when we start to feel more free in the relational realm, that's a very, that's a very beautiful thing. And, and it's the, the fruition of a lot of different aspects of personal development, I think. Um, it's a big, big topic. And, uh, and actually, I was thinking about talking about that maybe next time. Uh, Um, hi. Hi. Um, I have two questions now. Uh, okay. The first one came up when you were talking about um, opening our hearts to things that frighten us. Yeah. And um, I actually do that all the time. And it <laughs> seems like really to a fault, like it feels damaging. Mm. Um, like I f- end up feeling violated. Mm. And so it feels for me right now, like the work, uh, it feels immature almost the way mm. I'm just like flinging my heart open all the time at things yeah. that frighten me. So it feels like the work is more about um, like discernment and boundaries. Mm. And so I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how to, like, like when fear and pain is information that's yeah. helpful and to be listened to, to protect right. something, and when that it's good to open. And then my second question, kind of unrelated. Hang okay. on. That's good. That's a good one. Um, so, uh, to take the, the example I was giving around the snake thing, session one is not boa constrictor on the shoulders. <laughs> you know? Like, we're actually trying to find the optimal level of discomfort. Meaning that if we're too comfortable, uh, if, if our dharma practice, if our relational practice feels too safe and cozy and comfortable, we're probably not growing in some of the ways we need to grow. But if it feels too overstimulating and disorganizing and it's actually more than the system can handle, that's getting unbalanced too. And so ideally we're trying to find a kind of appropriate challenge level that evokes some of the anxiety or avoidance, but not all of it and not all the time. And uh, sometimes that's hard to modulate in practice, and especially in retreat practice. Sometimes people get 
more of a dose of, of avoided material than the mindfulness can actually handle. And in those times, it's not mature practice to keep opening the heart, to, to keep plowing through, to feel like, oh, if I can just be with this, I'll be okay. No, it's actually appropriate, as you were suggesting, to pull back, to be careful with one's limits, with boundaries. Uh, and that's actually skillful practice. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And the second thing you... Oh, really? Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is charisma? <laughs> well, you're asking that to somebody whose nickname is Captain Buzzkill. So, I don't know if I'm well equipped to answer. No, that's a joke. Not the nickname, but yeah. Um, what is charisma? Why do you ask? Why do you ask? Um, it's come up recently in uh, several conversations uh, in my life, and it seems to me to be like a force that's operating in the universe, like love, you know, mm -hmm. that like, and I can witness it like being misused in certain cases or like, like the Dalai Lama, for example, mm -hmm. very charismatic and using that power, really using it very well to create a lot of good. And so I'm just like, yeah, trying to figure out like, what is that? And how do you, what is it? And, and how do you, um, how do you, how do you use that in a mature way, you know? Yeah, yeah wow, I, I, that's a new question. It's um, <laughs> great. Um, I, I, do, I do think through, through practice, and not just this practice, but lots of practices, um, a kind of spiritual gravity kind of develops. And um, and that's that's a real for like sometimes we actually sense it, for example in the Dalai Lama uh, we actually sense there's a kind of yeah kind of gravitational force of the kindness or we feel inspired in in such a profound way and. Uh, and that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful thing. And I, 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 it's actually important that, that leaders, and especially people who are charismatic, do the work of purifying the heart so that the charisma, that force, is used in skillful ways. Because mixed up in it is a lot of projection and idealization and um, and actually like we give over power to people in ways and sometimes those people are capable of holding the power and using it just to liberate others you know like ideally that's the way one uses power is for the reduction of suffering but that's very tricky terrain, and a lot of times power becomes an accoutrement of ego and becomes a kind of, um, yeah, it gets mixed in with one's own um, greed, hatred, delusion, you know. And when power gets like entangled with kilesa, with causes of suffering, that's, that's a dangerous situation. And so um, one of the upshots of, of the, this for, for me is that, that uh, um, we as people, not just as, as the Dalai Lama or teachers or something, we actually are encouraged to, uh, yeah, 
I like that word, purify the heart so that our power is deployed in skillful ways. And that we actually, as we become more and more powerful, it's more and more important that we're safe for others. Because we can actually do more and more harm. Maybe uh, one more, yeah. Hi there. When you were talking about the process of exposure, um, where people can uh, learn to live with incoming stimuli without reacting towards them so much, that made me think of the work that I do with clients. But the idea of desensitization didn't ring well with me, and I was thinking about the efforts that we sometimes make to develop the client's compassion yeah. towards these feelings that are hardwired to come up. And if they can trace back sometimes their etiology and understand where they're coming from, and how in the past they might even have had a protective effect, yeah. then the compassion, which is the most powerful tool that we have as therapists, can actually make the difference. Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, and, and uh, that that word desensitization was is used in a very it's kind of limited context in the um, specifically in the context of learning theory, and it it didn't, doesn't mean a kind of flattening of the heart. Uh, I think what we find is that as we as we um, find ourselves avoiding less and less as more and more of our inner life feels safe what it actually does is is it is it frees up the attention it frees up the heart to be open to the world to the world of others and so as, as we get habituated or desensitized to that which we've avoided, that which causes anxiety, um, the heart actually opens, flowers. So let's just uh, sit for a moment. So as always, please take whatever is of use, leave the rest behind. And may our efforts here together tonight serve us in our lives, be a cause for more peace, more joy, more freedom. And may whatever peace, joy, and freedom is ours, may this be shared with everyone we encounter. Thank you. Thanks for your uh, practice.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.